in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today are my good friends and co-host, Mr. Chad Robinson from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How you doing, sir? Excited to start the new year. New year, new movies. It's, it's the new retro. It's a whole new class of movies that are uh, get to throw their little graduation hats up in the air. It, it, these are the movies that were from 2012, and they are now officially retro because the world got together and decided that we here at the Retro Movie Roundtable get to set the definition of what that means. And to join us today is a returning guest from one of our most popular episodes. Uh, he did the prestige with us back in our second season, Mr. Greg and Cardona from up north in Erie, PA. How are you doing, sir? Uh, very good. Thank you for uh, inviting me on the podcast again. I had a great time doing it the last time. That was one of my absolute favorite movies. So glad to be back for another one of my favorites. Love that episode. Yeah. Now, Greg, if you were an inhabitant of Middle Earth, and which for those non-dorks, that is the world of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit here. So if you were an inhabitant of Middle-earth, what are you? Are you a dwarf, orc, wizard, ranger, troll? What are, what are you, Greg? I would hope to be a wizard. Um, I grew up doing magic tricks and like little things like that. So I'd maybe one of the lesser wizards that's, you know, just kind of got the, the flashy little stuff or fireworks, kind of like Gandalf. Oh, I sense a strong connection here in your second episode. This magic is definitely a theme here, for sure. Chad, what about you? If you were in Middle-earth... What are you going to be? I'm going with an ant. I'm going to chill out in the forest, be slow-moving, decisive. Yep. Enjoy my time. Okay, yeah. And uh, you, would, you would enjoy being tall for the first time, and I, I, I understand where you're coming from with the desire to be tall, and I also want to be tall. Ouch. Yeah, I, I know, right? Uh, Chad and I are both under the uh, under six-foot-tall club, so uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that, but... Uh, I would be an elf, so I would get to be tall as well, and also I'd be very good at archery, so, uh, and live in Rivendell, which is beautiful, so uh, I would go for the elf side. They, they don't all live in Rivendell? I would, I would. Okay, I was going to say, there's Mirkwood. I, I want to live in Rivendell. I think if I'm an elf and I save up for a really long time, because they live a really long time, then I could afford, I could afford that in time. Yeah, real estate. The compounding interest as an elf is pretty appealing. <laughs> Definitely. If you invest early as an elf, you're, uh, you're going to be way ahead. <laughs> Investing has worked its way into this episode. <laughs> What's the last movie you saw, Greg? And it does not have to be in theaters. I watched the original Lord of the Rings trilogy as well. So that's kind of like the last movies aside from The Hobbit that I've watched. Um, but I did recently go see House of Gucci in theaters. How is that? Um... <laughs> There's your answer. It was the first movie that I've ever, in the middle of the movie, Googled how long is this movie. Ouch. Okay. 
Oh, wow. Okay. Man, she was great in A Star is Born. There was nothing that, like, drew me in and got me, like, excited about continuing on. I was more like, okay, how far into this am I? Yeah. Now, Chad, what movie are we doing today? As you mentioned, we are doing 2012's newly defined retro, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. All right. So we have Ian McKellen, Martin Freeman, Richard Armitage, James Nesbitt, Ken Scott, and Kate Blanchett all coming in here. Also got pop-ins from like Ian Holm, Christopher Lee, Hugo Weaving, Elijah Wood, and Andy Serkis from, from the Lord of the Rings run. So this comes out in 2012. It grosses $303 million, which is a lot. It comes in fifth on the box office that year, so it's very successful. It comes in just behind 007 Skyfall, which that's a good one. And just in front of Twilight Saga's Breaking Dawn Part 2. Chad, is that a good one? <laughs> Probably not. Okay. And uh, The Avengers was the number one movie in 2012. Uh, it made all of the money ever created and printed. And then it had to spend some of it to recirculate some back into the population. IMDb gives The Hobbit an unexpected journey. 7.8. Critics of Rotten Tomatoes don't like it. They have it at 64%. Not terrible, but the audience score comes to its aid and has it back at 83%. It gets three Academy Award nominations. Uh, it gets three BAFTA nominations as well. And the first movie in Peter Jackson's Middle Earth franchise without any Oscar wins at all, so it didn't win any. It grossed more money than The Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring or The Two Towers. So again, it was very successful. Greg, had you seen this one before? What was your take with it back when you saw it? Yes, I have seen it before. I saw it in theaters that year it came out. I was a junior in high school. I loved it whenever it first came out. I mean, it did have mixed reviews, kind of similar to like with not the reboot, but like the newer Star Wars movies. Everybody always is um, looks back at the older trilogy and wants, doesn't want anything new to come out about it. So mixed reviews for my friends, but I really thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a very big movie for me um, for a few different reasons, which I'll touch on later. I Ooh, that's a good tease. Now, what is it like for you in terms of, is it holding up over the years? Like, coming back to it today, what is it like? Yeah, I really enjoyed it on this watch around as well. For me, just that time of my life, being like a junior in high school, it has like the right bit of nostalgia. Being that's 10 years old, it's kind of crazy. Like, I don't think about that on being removed from high school by 10 years too often. I'm just getting into like the workforce and the pandemic has kind of made the last few years bleed together. So. Time is definitely moving by fast. I was actually really pleased with my watch through on this time as well. Great. Chad, had you seen The Habit in an Unexpected Journey before? I did. I saw it in theaters as well. And this holds a special place of scorn in my heart. Because my, my wife has seen the entire Hobbit trilogy with me. She watched all of those. We saw each movie in theaters. She has not seen the Lord of the Rings movies. She won't watch them. And that, to me, they're the superior trilogy by a large margin, in my opinion. And it's very frustrating. She was fine seeing The Hobbit. She will not see Lord of the Rings. She deems Lord of the Rings too long. So one day, one day, I will work in special favors and I will cash those in of we have to watch nine, ten hours of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah, whenever, they, whenever you do get her to go, they don't do the extended version. Just, just be kind. That is part of the issue, is I own solely the extended editions, like the four-hour editions. Fellowship is great. Two Towers is great. I will say Return of the King at like four and a half hours is a bit much. 
Uh, you might need to just come on over and borrow the the, the regular three pack. Yeah, that's the only way that's happening. Yeah, I, I do. I can help you out there. So, and uh, I also saw this one in theaters. I was very excited for it, and I didn't really leave disappointed at the time. And in fact, I felt like a lot of the criticism wasn't fairly warranted, and I just didn't keep watching it throughout the years. It's funny. Anytime a movie's quite as long as any of these Lord of the Rings movies, there's like um, there's like a notion of like. I mean, I really got to clear up my afternoon for this. I haven't returned to it, partially just because it's long. I got back to it again, and again, I kind of, I had a good time with it. And I think there's some things that might not be holding up as much, but I still have a good time with it. But I'm a nerd, and I understand that this movie is fundamentally not made as well as the Lord of the Rings movies. However, it is a companion piece, and I want that content and i certainly wouldn't want them to not make that content so i'm glad we got it i'm glad we didn't have to wait as long as uh, as greg already alluded to a comparison the star wars prequels i wouldn't want to have waited you know so many years in the future it was great to still have ian mckellen and some familiar faces still popping in so it makes me happy it's just not one of those all-time great ones that's all that's fair and we did set a new record. I want to say last year we had the record of like three hour plus movies. My goodness, we had some long ones. We did. We did. And I remember some of them were like in wintertime when it was dark outside. I remember going through like, and I watched the long Amadeus one too. It was just like, yes, I was like, I'm really tired. How long is it? Like, like Greg <laughs> said, how long is this movie? So I'm not sure about you guys, but whenever as even as long as these movies are sometimes like, watching this one like i have to now kind of commit to watching the trilogy like it'll just get me excited about it and probably over the next couple weeks especially with the holidays when i have some downtime i'll probably end up watching the other two in the trilogy just because um it kind of like reignites my excitement about it and i like to just watch the whole story again so i did the same thing i it's one of those things where I kind of sighed at the end, like, now I've got to watch the other two. But what I went ahead and did, uh, there, there are nice fan edits for this. I usually don't recommend fan edits for trilogies, but I think they do a really good job here of kind of getting the things that nerds like me get hung up on edited out. There's a wonderful edit called the Bilbo edit, and it pretty much removes anything that wasn't from Bilbo's perspective. It's very true to the books, which is helpful to someone like me. It's just a big fan of the book. It holds a special place in my heart. And it came in at four and a half hours for all three movies together. So that's that's what I did. I watched this one and then I watched the Bilbo edit. So that's out there and that's free. There's also the Maple edit is probably the best one out there. Wow, a lot of homework went into this one. So uh, <laughs> I didn't do any of that. I just I watched The Hobbit again. So. Well, I mean, you have drugged the podcast down in research. I did. You had given me a fair enough warning for the podcast that I I watched, like I said, all three of the original trilogy. So I'm basically on movie four of six for my journey right now, and the other two will be knocked out here shortly. And this is the part of the show where we have to warn people there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So if you have not seen The Hobbit, uh, and specifically we're mainly going to be focusing on this, but invariably there are some chances that if you have not seen the hobbit trilogy i can't promise you there won't be some spoilers that pop out of here for the other two movies so if you're really spoiler adverse go back check out all of that content and then come back and enjoy this we will be back after these messages 
Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals. Like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. All right, we're back. And this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. So, Chad, for those who haven't seen The Hobbit, colon... An Unexpected Journey from 2012. Would you refresh people's memories for us? In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Finally, a prequel to the amazing Lord of the Rings series from the book of the same name, An Unexpected Journey retells how Bilbo Baggins meets a group of dwarves led by Thorin Oakenshield, who seek to reclaim their home, and how he is tricked by Gandalf the Wizard into accompanying them on their quest. The journey is perilous, and along the way, they encounter trolls who nearly eat the party before turning to stone, a strange wizard named Radagast who warns of a creeping evil, the elves of Rivendell who reveal the dwarvish home will only open on Durin's Day, a battle of storm giants, a cave of goblins, and a hunting pack of orcs led by Azog. Bilbo becomes separated in the goblin's cave and stumbles upon the strange creature Gollum, in an even stranger ring which Gollum had lost and Bilbo discovers has the power to grant him invisibility. This trick comes in handy throughout the party's quest, and Bilbo is able to not only escape Gollum's clutches, but save the dwarves from becoming goblin dinner. Eventually, after escaping the goblins, Azog's orcs catch up to the dwarves and nearly kills Thorin off before being saved at the last second by Bilbo. A company of eagles who owe Gandalf a favor or two step in and save the adventurers from the remaining orcs and wargs and carry them to the safety of Carrick. With the lonely mountain in sight, we breathe a sigh of relief before the next leg of the journey begins, one that brings the party face-to-face with the great dragon Smaug. Right, so we have a new journey here before us, and a lot of old friendly faces. Let me first ask, With did we need this content? I mean, a lot of times people don't, like prequels as much and they do have a hard time because they're your hands kind of tied behind your back because you know at the end of a prequel you kind of know where all the pieces have to get to and so if anybody's there eh, they might die or they might uh you know just ride off into the sunset but there's a certain degree of resolution that you already know going into the movie and especially as a first time watcher that may steal some of your enthusiasm for it. So uh, is this is this something you wanted, Greg? Is this for the hardcore fans or is this for everybody? So the, the original Lord of the Rings trilogy for me, I was pretty young when that came out and I was watching it from more of a perspective of I liked action scenes and I was a kid playing some of the video games and whatnot and wanted to just go replay the you know cave troll or the spider fight scene or something like that. So this one, for me, actually got me more... I was at the age where I was more following the storyline and getting into the story of movies, so it actually reignited my excitement for the original trilogy. Um, so in that sense, I think 
it was good for a lot of people my age. I think it had the same experience in that way. That's a really good way to point that out. And I know for a fact there are adults out there now who would have seen and fell in love with the prequels initially for Star Wars. And so it's interesting how, like you said, it, it can introduce you to the rest of the series. Chad, did, did you need the Hobbit series for you? Like, was this something you wanted? I don't know that I need it in my life, but I'm happy there was an attempt. I do think it it pushes people into the world of Middle Earth, and hopefully it's an enjoyable time and it's an enjoyable introduction. And they check out the Lord of the Rings, they get into it more. There's a lot of neat things that are brought into this trilogy that are outside of the Hobbit book. The Hobbit book is a book written for children. It's much more lighthearted than Lord of the Rings. So in this movie, we're bringing in the Silmarillion context. There's a lot of extra outside of the big books of Tolkien. Uh, There are some untold and unfinished tales that are brought in by Christopher Tolkien. So there's cool stuff here that you can really, you can sink your teeth into and nerd out. The, The flip side of that is... If you get into that level, you're going to start being probably annoyed with some of the things, the liberties they take. So the Radagasts of the world, Radagast is basically just mentioned as Gandalf's cousin, and that's that's all you get in the books. He's not prevalent here. And then there become problems of, okay, we've got to make Radagast important. So we've got to make him, he's hip to the necromancer and Gandalf isn't becomes problematic because Gandalf's sole job is to stop Sauron. That's why he's there. That He's Maiar. That's his mission. So <laughs> it makes him incompetent, but you have some trade-offs and some cool scenes. What order would you introduce somebody to? So 50 years from now, 100 years from now, what order are you giving these movies to your great-great-grandchildren, Greg? Probably start them with the original, the original trilogy of The Lord of the Rings. I kind of like some of the the practical effects in the original one better, and I just think overall it's just a deeper story in the in the main trilogy. I'd probably give them that one first, and then move on to the other one. So start with a strong foot there. That makes sense. What do we think about the uh, main villain here in this one? I, it's kind of a it's uh, we don't really fully divulge into this. Like we have this mysterious evil form that's coming through. Uh, and it takes a while. And if anything, Azog, this orc giant who had his arm cut off by Thorin Oakenshield after Thorin kills or Thorin watches his dad defeated in battle by Azog, he's kind of your main villain. Are you satisfied with what you get as far as a villain goes in this one? I think there could have been some improvements with Azog. I did like like the concept of the pale orc. I liked. Um... Like the storyline that he was involved in, but I think there were like some shortcomings as far as like if you look at just the practical effects they use on all the other orcs, maybe they could have used that something like that instead of doing the animation. By no means is the animation or any sort of CGI bad. I think it's like really good quality, and even watching back, seeing that's ten years old, it holds up really well in comparison to the stuff today. I think they could have did something more similar, giving him more personality, kind of like Smeagol and Gollum, um, with like face tracking, Andy Circus type job would have been more interesting to see something like that. Yeah, Azog was an interesting choice because he's someone that was killed by Thorin's dad Thane at the battle, 
So he's he's conjured up from the books probably because he was a named orc and he's a big white orc. That's kind of a cool look. I don't know that we necessarily needed to resurrect him to put him in this primary villain role, but I I think he works just fine. He's a good foil for Thorn. They changed the story so it works. There's some kind of personal connection. The only criticism I I would put up here is He's a bit reminiscent, reminiscent of Lurtz, uh, the Urukai from Fellowship of the Ring. So See, I don't think he's as scary and mean as that. Yeah, yeah, which he should be. Yeah, I don't. I I I come. I, I feel like the glass is half full on on, on Azog versus uh, your main head uh, orc. Lurtz. Lurtz. Thank you. Lurtz is a different character. Yes. Medium. <laughs> the monsters. Yeah. Yes. I think I'm glad that he's there. Now, I certainly wouldn't want to get rid of him because if he wasn't there, he wouldn't be chasing the dwarfs along and they would just take their time eating large quantities of food and singing and smoking pipes and not getting on the road. So, in fact, I wish Azog had hurried them up a little bit sooner. This movie takes a little while to get going. Is that a fair statement, Greg? Yeah, it's a fair, definitely a fair statement. Um, the beginning definitely has some like nods to the fans of like, you know, alluding to a little bit of a precursor to what happens at the beginning of the first film um, with the the party and whatnot and seeing like Bilbo right before that occurrence and there's a lot of stuff like that that maybe could be scrubbed I don't really mind it the the first one is kind of just setting the whole tone for like the second two are much much hot faster paced I do like the slow pace of this one I would probably change it yeah, they're definitely doing the same thing as Fellowship of the Ring and starting off with the retelling of a major battle. I like the retelling of the fall of Erebor at the front here. Then getting to return to Middle-earth, hearing that theme for me is just magic. It it doesn't matter. I like seeing Elijah Wood again. It just brings a smile to my face. So I get how it can be frustrating. I really do. And even I was a little bit frustrated. But I think to just set foot back in New Zealand on these sets to hear that music hit, it works for me in a nostalgia way that, you know, Greg, maybe it doesn't work for you because like you were saying, you were you were s- smaller when these first hit. You were there for orcs and elves and dwarves and the big fight scenes and, and Helm's Deep and stuff like that. But uh, for me, it's just Howard Shore's soundtrack is I, one of the best soundtracks I can think of. I do love um, the soundtrack of this movie, like certain things like that. I I really like like the the nods to the fan and everything along those lines. Like it gets me really excited. Like watching back on this one, like those beginning scenes of this movie are nostalgic for me. And I think the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit trilogies both have some of like the best play motif of any movie trilogies out there. So they have like those little pieces of music that relate to a character or the ring or the shire and you could hear that anywhere and it's some of those to me are like bigger than like the star wars ones that everyone else is familiar with like they are more nostalgic for me and mean more to myself and then the flashbacks like you're saying looking back on like the big battles and stuff i love the storyline and history of Aragorn and like building that up and kind of the mystique of the dragon and everything like that. It's it's very exciting. I just like that aspect of the film. And I like I really like how it parallels the fellowship of the ring. 
um, some aspects, I wish they would have even tried to parallel it a little bit more. But I really like how it almost feels like a similar movie through and through. And they, they have a tall order as well. They have to introduce a lot of new characters at more or less one time, and they do their best to space it out. In doing, in doing the spacing it out, obviously, you're, it's stretching out. But you, you, and when you're writing a story, you, it's hard to just show up with 11 new characters to the viewer to try and digest them and to try and get to know them. And even though we spend a very long time with them, it's, it, it's debatably an impossible task. And obviously, Thorin is the key figure here. And I find him to be interesting in that he's not very likable for your, like, you know, he's the leader, the, like the guy who's heading this charge to go retake their home for the, for the dwarves and to get their caves back. But he's not very nice. Like, he's not a nice character. And obviously, that's a good opportunity for character transformation. But he remains fairly unlikable throughout the course of most of this movie. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, it's definitely a change from the book. They make him far more condescending to Bilbo, whereas in the books he's he's petty, but he's never condescending. He does get into it with Gandalf a couple of times. He doesn't have this hatred for elves that they wrote in. They wrote uh, Thranduil into the battle at Erebor, so he's got that going too, and so yeah, it, it made it a little tough. Like you're saying, he's he's hard to root for because he's just so stubborn and so condescending for almost for very little reason yeah i have sometimes found myself wondering as like some of these other dwarves are pretty pretty cool more a lot more amiable to like just go with the flow and i'm sitting there thinking like is there nowhere else on middle earth you just kind of want to adopt i mean like you sure you want to walk around with this like brooding like angry dude like he's like i gotta get my gold back in my cave Rawr, i hate elves everybody else is happy and he's grumpy so yeah. he's grumpy dwarf that's true yes you should have a grumpy um and and you do have a hungry too there's 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 a fat there's a fat dwarf in there too yes bombor greg did you like the group of the of the dwarves did you like the co- uh, spending time with him did you feel like he got enough of that or did the action scene steal too much of the camaraderie that was so strong between the hobbits as well as the other lovable characters we had in lord of the rings I think this first movie was really good for the camaraderie. I enjoyed the the dwarves, their costumes, their makeup was all do- really well done. All of their like little witty lines and um I do like I like Thorin a lot. He is kind of insufferable at some points and you're just like like come on like this guy's like whenever he's bagging on uh Bilbo, but I was thinking about this kind of comparing him to uh Leonidas in 300 whenever all the guys are like celebrating and they're like cheering together and you see like Leonidas just standing there stoic it was like Thorin kind of carried the weight of all of the the negative things that happened to their people for them so like the rest of the company and the rest of these dwarves could kind of just be these goofy joyous creatures they they knew how to fight when it came down to it but he kind of took the weight of all of the the negative stuff so um, in a sense, like I could see how he was like, how his attitude came about or where he was coming from, if that makes sense. Yeah. And we got to meet Bilbo in the Lord of the Rings movies and it was played by Ian Holm there. And here we have a younger actor, Martin Freeman, performing him and which I would say he was so good. I forget that I'm not watching Ian Holm as a younger man when I'm watching Martin Freeman. Something about it seems so perfect for the casting on that one. I would say that this has probably been one of my favorite parts of this movie was just to see like 
Bilbo seems like a big deal, but you don't really fully get the full appreciation of why he's a big deal. And it's really fun to see. And this is kind of going back to what I was saying earlier. I do want this. I want to see why Bilbo, what all these journeys were that were not so specific or only lightly pointed out, like alluded to. And it's really fun to go see all those adventures. And it's also fun to see that he was not a very adventuresome guy. I mean, he reminds me a lot of Jack Lemmon from The Odd Couple, running around trying to make sure, like, you know, the table's clean and don't get the boots in the house. And, you know, a lot of things that I might even do myself. And he has no taste for adventure. And it's kind of funny how Gandalf has selected him uh, more than he has selected this crew. And it's funny to see him reluctantly pulled into there. There's some good humor out of that. And, uh, he has half a taste for adventure. He's half took in tooks like adventure. Yeah. but. I think that reluctance and being out of his element, fish out of water, he's not a warrior. He's not even a burglar, which is what he was recruited to do. I think that that adds a lot of fun and some humor to the movie. And when you're trudging around Thor and Oakenshield, you need a little bit of that. And he provides it quite well. And considering like you had Merry and Pippin before, they were great, like mood balances. This, there's no dwarves that ha- carry that for this. So what I thought was really amazing by Martin Freeman, he has to carry the sincerity as well, and the seriousness and, and the profound moments, but he also has to be lighthearted and, and you know quick on his feet. And I really enjoyed this character. I really did like Bilbo. And while I might have some gripes about, like, get on with it to start the movie, and to, you know, I think I might have texted Chad. I was like, I'm 40 minutes into this movie, and I think I could get this down to, like, 15 minutes. <laughs> Yeah, forty at the forty minute mark. I'm pretty sure they're just walking out of the Shire. So it's funny how how the movie is paced there at the beginning. But once they get out of the Shire, it's fun. Once the company gets along moving, and he's finally running on his adventure. Well, it's kind of a reverse Dune situation. In Dune, we had David Lynch wanted to make two movies, and then the studio took a second movie away from him, and he was stuck with one. And then it's uh, it's it has a lot of plot holes, and it it, it shows that two movies became one. And I think there's some signs here that two movies became three movies. I think Warner Brothers and the, the, the powers that be wanted three movies because it would make a lot of money. They were right. <laughs> but I think that that sense of stretching it, obviously, Peter Jackson is very good at filling it up. I mean, he's done that. If you've watched the extended editions, as we've alluded to, they add a lot of content there. He does adapt things from the source material. Well, and he makes he makes some changes, but it usually leads to something that's highly rewarding. Now he has a children's book here. It's not as maybe as low as the Narnia books in terms of its like reading level, but the book is not written at the same reading level. No, as the other three movies, and it, uh, it's it's one book as opposed to three. So, Chad, I am not a book reader, but I've just instantly knowing all of that stuff. Is that what happened here? Like, is that what this seems to be the number one gripe everybody has? Yeah, I, it's definitely studio interference. And you see it most egregiously in the Battle of Five Armies. That's practically non existent in the books. I mean, it's very short because the book is told from Bilbo's point of view. And Bilbo was not a very important part of the Battle of Five Armies. He's at the beginning, he's at the end. The entire middle is pretty much just filled in by Gandalf and subtext at the end. So yeah, there there's a huge amount of filler there. And there's also 
I don't know if it was studio interference or if there was other, like Peter Jackson wanting to get familiar characters in here, but we start throwing in the Legoluses, the Galadriels, Saruman. None of these are in the books. Uh, the White Council is one of my favorite scenes in The Hobbit. I, I really do. That's from the Silmarillion, but it's not in the book at all because, again, Bilbo wasn't there. And some of it, too, is Peter Jackson wanting female inf- influence. We see Toriel in future Hobbit movies. She's not in this one, but Galadriel was added specifically because this is a very male-centric movie. We've got all-male dwarves, Gandalf, Bilbo, so we put Galadriel in here not only because she's a fan favorite, but so we could have a female presence. Yeah, I don't think there's any name character female dwarves in any of these six movies, are there? It seems like they're like the Smurfs. Correct, yes. You never see a dwarf woman. But you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a dwarf man and a dwarf woman. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, just uh, it's like there's one Smurfette for the whole village. How's that work out, you know? Greg, now, what do you think about this cast? It's nice seeing Gandalf again or having him for like another set of movies. Like he's just that one of those fan favorite characters and, you know, he delivers to the expectation. He, he transforms in the Lord of the Rings trilogy and he has to reverse transform his character to a more humble, less, I guess, impressive version of himself. They make some jokes about like, uh, you know, is he a good wizard or is he like you kind of thing? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, and so it was interesting to see him change and shift his performance to become more humble whereas by the return of the king there's he has a sense of power to him yeah in the return of the king it kind of goes through that you know he went through all of this time and watching these movies it's like is you're kind of questioning is gandalf know that he's putting all these things in motion from the start did he pick bilbo knowing Bilbo's going to find this ring or is it his subconscious doing this like it's uh He's kind of one of, he's like the glue holding everything together. It's a nice mystery to have there, to be able to kind of question and wonder if he was intentionally moving all of those strings or if just by his nature, he unintentionally caused all of those things to happen. I got to say he's a true professional because he was truly unhappy filming this. He was an accomplished actor, but they kept him in his own stage like doing these blue screen kind of situations away from the rest of the cast and he was pretty sad about that and sometimes they would come and try and visit him and just you know give him some gifts or like you know hang out with him a little bit trying to cheer him up but he was truly frustrated by that situation which wasn't like that he had a sense of camaraderie with the people that he had filmed Lord of the Rings with he considered even leaving the project at one point and asked John Hurt to take over for him Thank goodness that didn't happen because uh, it doesn't show in his performance. You know, we talked about, you know, later Sean Connery films as uh, in his Devil of Several. When he is so unhappy as an individual and as an actor going through this, it, it really shows in the performance. You don't get the same level of performance. And I just got to give it to Ian McKellen. If he was if he's unhappy as what, you know, you read through the making of this, it certainly doesn't show. Yeah. Yeah. He was breaking down crying and because he's acting in front of tennis balls on a stick and he's saying, this isn't acting. This isn't how it's supposed to go. So you really feel for him. You, you see the same thing with Ewan McGregor. He lamented a lot of the prequels of how difficult it was because he was acting to a tennis ball instead of a human emoting in front of him. 
think it's tougher for somebody like Ian McKellen, who's come from two generations back of acting. Oh, yeah. I think today you're expected to be able to conjure that versatility up. It's always going to be different. But I think that is a tall order from Ian McKellen. And like I said, when you've done Lord of the Rings in a certain way, there's some degree of expectation of same director, similar locations. Why is this different? I had fun the first time and I'm not having fun again. It's almost like taking a vacation with your family to somewhere that you had a great time and then nothing goes the way that you want it to that the, the, when you return. It turns into a nightmare trip. I was lucky enough to be able to go to New Zealand myself. So I visited there. Oh, cool. Uh, for like a, a few weeks stint. And actually, I only traveled around. There's two islands, a North and South Island. I did like a backpacking trip around the South Island. So I got to see like some of the locations. Like not, not many of them are on the South Island. They're all primarily on the North Island. Um, apparently, if you land in the North Island, you like land. There's a big Middle Earth sign and all this stuff like that but i could see how like him going from that to being more primarily in front of blue and green screens and tennis balls like i was just on hikes and i felt like well i was like jokingly you know like i'm on an adventure like i'm in the movies because i loved these movies and i knew that i was where they were filmed but you do just get a sense of adventure being in these trails and on these mountains and stuff so going from that to a blue screen i could see how someone would be so disappointed that place is unrealistic. Like looking at it looks like you're looking at a photoshopped photo. <laughs> Russell, you, you mentioned the cast and the cast was a tough one for me because I can't help but compare it to their original trilogy of Lord of the Rings where I felt every major role was just nailed. And here it feels like once again, there's studio interference. Like Aiden Turner, it's not his fault. He's the one that plays Killy. He's a good looking guy. He was clearly placed in this role as a dwarf without a beard to be the good-looking guy. He is the sex appeal. Even Richard Armitage, or to some extent, he's put there uh, to be a sexy dwarf, which is an odd... smoldering dwarf. Yes, it's an odd thing to have this brooding, sexy dwarf thing going on. So while we get the traditional dwarf look with... Uh, John Callan, Peter Hamilton for the oin and gloin. And I thought uh, Ken Stott has ballin'. He was amazing. It's a mixed bag. You mentioned Martin Freeman. I wasn't so sure about him. He does play a great kind of fuss pot with John Holmes in the Sherlock series. So yeah, he does a pretty good job here. But when I think of Bilbo, I think of a little heavier set. And even maybe a little more fussy than even what Martin Freeman does here. But I did think he did a miraculous job. I I enjoyed his performance. I was just, I was skeptical at the initial announcement of his casting. Well, Daniel Radcliffe, Shia LaBeouf, James McAvoy, Aaron Arkin, and Tobey Maguire were all considered for roles. All of those are worse. Yeah, I was going to say, Martin Freeman was always uh, Jackson's first choice. So he got his first choice. and. I love actually all of those other actors, but I, once I've seen Martin Freeman and it's just like, he's so good at being Bilbo. Yeah. James McAvoy is probably the best of the lot there, but I, I don't see him in this role at all. I don't see him as fussy and he's very, very scrawny. I mean, Martin Freeman's pretty skinny himself, but yeah, that's, it just wouldn't fit at all. I, I can't see it. 
Yeah. No, Guillermo del Toro was originally going to direct this movie and had intended to cast Doug Jones as Thandril in here mm-hmm. and Ian McShane as a unspecified dwarf. And he uh, also wanted to get Ron Perlman in there. So some of his uh, of friends and stuff were all lined up. It's kind of funny. David Tennant was even rumored to be playing the role of Thandril once Peter Jackson takes over the movie. Uh, Lee Pace ends up getting that specific role. He would have been a third Doctor Who to enter the Middle Earth realm. So you would have had Sylvester McCoy, who is Radagast. He's the seventh Doctor. And then um, then John Hurt does the voice of Aragorn back in the 1978 version of The Lord of the Rings. So nerd powers coming together. Uh, it, it almost happened. I really kind of wish David Tennant had worked his way into this. I do too, yeah. Even if he winds up, it was Luke Evans, right, that does Bard in the Desolation of Smog. Oh, he is good. I. If you'd mixed, if you'd put David Tennant in that role, I could see him there. You can't go wrong either way with that choice. Put him in Lake Town somewhere. Yeah. One thing on the cast I want to highlight is I do love Andy Serkis in movies. I don't think he gets enough credit. And he's used a lot by Peter Jackson. So one of my old favorite movies is King Kong. And he actually is in that movie. And he also plays as King Kong. So he's like a little side character in the movie. But then he also plays as King Kong. And then I really like him in the Planet of the Apes trilogy. Yes. Um, this movie, you can see like the, the emotion a little bit more showing through from him just because technology has advanced. So I always enjoy seeing Andy Serkis in movies. He's very expressive with his face, and I, I like seeing him in with the cast. As far as the writing... I don't know, like you said, it is a little bit of a slower movie, but I do think it's kind of needed for this first one. So as we mentioned before, Guillermo del Toro was, a lo- was set to be the director of this movie, and it was supposed to move forward in 2008, but there was a lawsuit that broke out between the families of Peter Jackson's family members in New Line Cinema. It all gets tied up in pre-production, and uh, del Toro moves on, and Jackson was the producer, and to make sure things don't fall apart, he steps back into the role. He's coming off of a pretty serious ulcer, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So he's coming off of a um, surgery for an ulcer, and he had to recover. So they delayed production for him to recover to be able to do this. But changing hands a lot, and it gets back to Peter Jackson's hands. Do you, Greg, do you think that you'd want to see the Guillermo del Toro Middle Earth version. Obviously, we're all comfortable with Peter Jackson, and it's probably better for continuity that it happened this way, but are you a little bit intrigued But what Guillermo del Toro would have done with this with such strong stylistic moves that he takes? I'm intrigued at maybe what it would have looked like. Pan's Labyrinth is obviously just a great movie, Like, and obviously that stands out for him. Um, he did The Shape of Water as well. Yes. Yeah, I really love The Shape of Water. Hellboy 2. But I think it was like necessary for them to do Peter Jackson. Stylistically, it matches so well to the Lord of the Rings that you feel from that first scene, you're back in the same world. If you had to adjust to a different style and you were just seeing the same faces, it may have felt a little funny jumping into the same world. It may have felt like a different world. And even in some of Peter Jackson's other movies, like like I said, King Kong, there are a lot of similarities in style that you can see with Jackson. So he has a very specific look and feel, whether it's the overlays and like lighting of the film to how, you know, props are built, whether it's like rafts or, you know, the 
the little sleigh thing used by Radagast or the way makeup is and how people look dirty even in a certain way in his films. So I was really, I really pleased with the stylistic choice of maintaining using Jackson. I think if you'd asked me before this movie was made, oh, Guillermo del Toro's doing that instead of Peter Jackson, I would have been upset. And seeing what we've got, I, I don't know what Jackson was going for. I feel like sometimes the series is tonally confused. It's almost like it reverts to The Hobbit and the, the book of being less serious, and it's got some body function jokes in here, which just feel odd given the serious matter of Lord of the Rings. Uh, I know Gimli was used as a little bit of comic relief. It, I don't know if Del Toro would have been more consistent in tone. Like He obviously does great fantasy, Shape of Water, Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy, we mentioned all of that, and they're great fantasy settings, and I feel like he's... He likes his monsters, Pacific Rim as well. Yeah, I feel like he's consistent with whatever genre he's going going with, so... I don't know. Again, it could have been studio interference like we saw in the DC world after Marvel became successful. All of a sudden, DC has to go from dark and brooding to you need more jokes in here. Let's put Will Smith in something. Justice League was completely reshot. I don't, I don't know what happened here that Peter Jackson just changes the tone of the series to something that has a, a goblin king making making jokes of, what are you going to do now? That'll do it. And then falls on the dwarves and squishes them. It's just odd. The Goblin King was my least favorite part of the movie. I will agree with that. I I didn't really like the... I mean, I liked the Goblin Tunnels. It kind of felt like a video game. <laughs> and that, like, that was like the closest... A, it felt a lot like a... That was like did. the closest a movie has ever come to a video game. Like, I felt like I had played through that mission in some game before in my lifetime. Honestly, towards the end, when they're moving down the hill at a rapid pace and hopping onto birds and flying away, I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of parts of this movie that feel very video game-like. Before, When mm-hmm. they're running away from the orcs, too, through the like trying to hide on the rocks and like make their way to the cave that will eventually take them to the elves not what they were going for obviously but gandalf makes the best of the situation that also felt like a video game and i the reason i'm saying that is i'm I'm kind of stepping ahead but this movie doesn't feel as real as the other trilogy lord of the rings does it feels really cgi and i think if anybody's listened to the show for a long time they'll know i have a little bit of a cgi hump to get over sometimes in the moment I, i try and put it down but actually it's usually upon rewatch is where I start to go like, yeah, I wish they had just done more of that for real. And they did do more of it for real last time with Lord of the Rings. And this time, I know time goes by, technology is even more impressive, but I feel like looking back at it for 10 years, I'm not quite sure I agree with you, Greg, that some, like you said, it looks really good today. I felt like it's it's out of that era and like the, like the early O's where it's just like that CGI is very very bad and i'm very aware that that is cgi like it's not it's not that but it isn't quite as good as it you know it's still bad enough to complain about is what i'm getting at there's something that's unnatural about the way they move and there's something that's unnatural about so much of it in the surroundings is cgi it's not a piece that's cgi it's not like you put a dragon into a very otherwise real setting 
you know, like Jurassic Park, long, 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 long time ago, really bad technology understood the value of obscuring the CGI elements with real stuff around it and putting real characters in the foreground. So, uh, you know, you, but then that brontosaurus reaches up and eats out of a tree. There's a tree in front of it. You don't really just see a brontosaurus there. And here, I feel like the CGI, such as the Goblin King, is just out there to for you to notice. And I just feel like it's a little exposed in a bad way. It's tough, too, because a lot of this, it almost feels like we've already been here. We've already done this. You were talking about the Goblin Escape in the go- Goblin Cave. That feels very tonally similar to the escape from Moria and the Fellowship of the Ring, except it's far more, as, as you've put it, video gamey. There's no real threat of danger. They're running through and just slashing guys left and right. So it, it does feel like the Lord of the Rings video games are all-time greats. Two Towers, Return of the King, I claim Gandalf all day, and it, it feels like you're just plowing over goblins left and right rather than moria where they are fleeing for their lives yeah i mean the other the other goblin or sorry the other dwarf cave that we meet the fortress mines in the beginning in Er erebor right erebor yeah they're erebor yeah Yeah, erebor they look terrible they're very polyagonal which i know is an architecture that they were going for in that but somehow that the way the camera pans through there in such a fluid motion it doesn't seem it doesn't seem very authentic. And like you said, Chad, like it's just so cavernously done. It's like this MC Escher picture. I feel like some of the early Harry Potter movies have worse CGI, but they create a more believable setting because they put more real stuff into it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's fair. There there's at least something to anchor you to reality. Right. Uh, so a picture of John Cleese on the wall that starts talking to you would go a long way in these dwarf mines. So <laughs> I would put him in Lord of the Rings, absolutely. It's like, which way did he go? He went that way. I kind of felt like he was in Lord of the Rings here in The Hobbit. It, it seemed like Radagast, they were going for a Tim the Enchanter from Monty Python feel, which wasn't great for me. Uh, I'm like, what? You have no source material for this, so now he's addicted to mushrooms and has rabbit sleds. I like the rabbit sled, by the way, but it was just a weird thing for them to do. This is shown in a different frame rate of 48 frames per second, which is twice as fast as the industry standard of 24 frames per second. The intention of this was to just make the movie smoother and more realistic in motion, which makes it look better in slow motion. Like, so when you do things in slow motion, they're really pretty. Which I'm sure Zack Snyder salivating after his Justice League commercial uh, movie, which was entirely <laughs> in slow motion. But it's also done for the 3D experience. And I saw this in 3D. And this was an era that 3D was just being hit too hard for my taste. I also don't like 3D. So I'm trying not to be the old man. This is like 48 frames per second or whatever. Something did feel unnatural about it. And I put it on this too much CGI at the time. I don't know if any of it's actually the frame rate. Should technically it should make it look better, but because so much stuff is CGI, that also made it feel like a video game. And I don't mean it in a good way. Like Raiders of the Lost Ark, sorry, um, Temple of Doom feels like a video game in the most fun way, but it's all real stuff. It feels like a video game because it's fun. It's like a roller coaster moving through those mine cars. This is, like you said, feels like a video game because it looks like a video game. 
I didn't experience this, but there was widespread reports of people getting sick because of that frame rate. It gave them headaches. It same as the 3D trend. You know, a lot of people got headaches. My wife actually got headaches during Avatar and had to watch Avatar without the 3D glasses. But I know the frame rate affected some people in a really negative way. For me, it was fine, but I I get it. I get what they were going for, but I. I think it was a risk they shouldn't have taken. Yeah, well, I'm glad the 3D craze died down. Well, not only did I not like shelling out the extra dollars to see it, I didn't really feel like it enhanced my experience. So, yeah, like, Greg, say something positive here. <laughs> okay, so I, d- I don't like 3D movies either in a movie theater. So, so you say say something positive, I say something negative. But I will follow that up with, I have like a, one of those VR helmets it's, uh, called the Oculus Quest. And you can go sit in a movie theater in there and watch movies. It's really, it's actually really good quality. If you're just sitting in your chair at home, you feel like you're in a movie theater, huge screen. And 3D movies and virtual reality are crazy because since you're already sitting in a 3D space, it feels like stuff's coming into the room. So I, I didn't try The Hobbit, but I have watched 3D movies in virtual reality, and I had kind of forgot. I'd never, I've never watched The Hobbit in 3D. Oh, good for you. Um, so I will uh, maybe I'll try it in VR though, and have to let you know if it was any better than just watching it as a 3D movie. And to your point, I could actually totally believe that. I believe the technology to push ahead is still there. So I'm not saying it's a tradition. We always stay with 24 frames per second, and movies are flat. By God. Yeah, I will comment on the frame rate. I do think the frame rate had to do with the use of CGI. Scenes like the Goblin Tunnel, scenes like uh, the rock, the giant rock mountains fighting. Like higher frame rates and things like that are definitely pushed in video games. And so whenever they use a lot of graphics like that, either to remove some motion blur or just to allow rendering to happen to get the quality that they were looking for, they may have had to increase the frame rate for some of those reasons. That would make sense. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Really video game-like. And the, the range and quality of CGI in the movie varied for me too like you could just tell looking at the goblin king in the tunnel wow this is very fake i don't like his like turkey gobbler thing that they got going on yes you can say it it looks like he has balls on his chin yeah like what like what was he got scrotum chin going on and then you got andy circus i thought was done very well for like the time it was better than the originals it it was that was better you're right about that i touched up Azog, a little better than the Goblin King, but noticeably. I did not uh, personally like the, and like the dogs, what are they called again? The Wargs. Yeah, so the, I wasn't a fan of them being CGI. I thought they looked much better in the original trilogy. It felt like they were on like some sort of hyena. Now it was definitely some sort of overscaled CGI wolf. And Radagast rabbits didn't look very good either, I didn't think. Uh, Radagast's makeup, though, was one of my favorite things. Once we get into superlatives, I do oh, like the bird. Yeah. No, I just meant the rabbits, though. Like, when they when they did long shots zooming out of the rabbits running, like, on that sled, I was like, ooh, don't, don't, like, <laughs> don't show it like that. I mean, like, you either gotta zoom, like, way up out and, like, helicopter shot up above so that he's, like, a little tiny dot or something like that, or, like, you hit the exact worst scale to show that at. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm surprised by that because Peter Jackson is such a good director. Like, like, like you said, King Kong doesn't suffer from any of these problems, or the Rings doesn't suffer from these problems, and it's the same director. 
And I do find myself wondering, is like, I know they told him to stretch it out. And I, that's the editing thing. Like, I'm not putting any of the editing on his plate. I am questioning his sudden confidence in computer animation. You know, I borderline even think what Lucas did with the prequels was more forgivable because what George Lucas did in The Phantom Menace pushed the ball so far ahead from where it was at that point. I mean, it probably would have taken the rest of the movie industry 10 years to get to that point. Does it look bad today? Yeah, I mean, yeah, but I mean, he was really pioneering. I don't think this is necessarily, I don't think I can give it that degree of forgiveness. I've bagged on the prequels of Star Wars forever, so, but you know what? I will give George this. They're relatively short movies. Like, we could have divided this into three movies and still had them be reasonable lengths. I don't need to see Ozog having a planning meeting. We didn't have a meeting or a scene where Saruman's talking to the Urukai and saying, all right, go here. What about this? You failed me, all this stuff. But we get it with Azog. Why? You know, and he, for whatever reason, only speaks Orcish. Every every other Orc has spoken English. Oh, you're right. Yeah. So these, these are the things that stick with me. I'm like, yeah, we're trying to make him special, but now we've got subtitles and this makes it weird. I don't think I ever would have noticed that, Chad, until you pointed it out. But once you pointed it out, I see it now. But yeah. That was one of the downfalls with Azog is it was hard for him to really have a personality whenever he's using this fake orcish language. He comes off as a video game boss with a subtitle every time that he's talking. Oh, man, yeah. now I'm always going to look at him like Charlie Brown's teacher going, wah, 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 wah. Yeah. Really? Yeah, they all speak the common tongue except for Azog because I guess that makes him more menacing. I don't know. We haven't talked about how good it does look because there's already parts of this that do look great. The obviously New Zealand is a gorgeous location. Greg, it's awesome that you got to go there because my first thought is every time I watch something like this or The Revenant or the original Lord of the Rings series is when you have something that's so ambitiously sp- uh, scoped out for where to shoot and they go there, it's just like I have this really big feeling of like, man, our planet's really beautiful when we don't like screw it up. <laughs> it's really really beautiful and it's really fun to go there so much so that it does feel like you went to another place like another world definitely a whole nother world that place is so beautiful everybody there is extremely nice uh what we were in um backpacking from like hostel to hostel and staying in like these little basically like shared living spaces with other travelers and you end up cooking dinner with people you had just met talking with them you're all in a different world there was one place we stopped and walked out onto a small beach and there's like a there's a sea lion on the beach like this giant thing it was really larger than life and like some of these lakes are like this weird blue color there so like i said everything looks photoshopped movies pictures they don't really do that place justice so i could see um, as if I were a movie director, I'd be using every excuse to. That would be my location for like every movie. They'd be like, "You're doing. You don't need to go there at all." I'd be using every excuse to go somewhere like that. Why do you need to shoot cars for there? Cause I do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or cause I doom. So um, nerd joke. <laughs> so Bilbo's house is a really interesting piece of architecture. You got these really circular doors, the low ceilings. They have a lot of fun with that. I think it's interesting. They actually just simply shoot people closer to the camera in some cases. Like uh, they have even McKellen positioned differently. And there is obviously CGI magic that goes with this as well. But 
I felt like that was one of the high points for the atmospheres. I know I've been I've been unusually negative for the show, and I, I want to pull it up and say like, awesome job there. And I really want to say that Rivendell was really cool. I wish we could have spent a little more time there as well. Having this waterfall on t- like at like Niagara Falls, like Victoria Falls, like falls moving around you as well as it's kind of a cloister stuck in the mountains that like you know it's very landlocked with the mountains all around you so it's it's just this little piece and then on top of that you have this stilted up stone and timber construction village on top of it with this inspiring bridge with no railings i don't know why not putting railings on things makes it seem like (laughs) like really impressive but yeah like (laughs) walking across that bridge was like something out of zelda like it was very very rewarding to go to Rivendale and I was kind of like it's like do you guys really want to go live in a cave like and do you really want to be racist against the elves because they got a pretty good spot here and I think we could all just get along and settle in here they were so happy in the books like they spent 14 days in Rivendale there were songs the elves sang them out like they had a good time and didn't want to leave there's a reason Bilbo goes back to Rivendale over and over you're right it's a gorgeous place and as far as the the heights that was one of the most fascinating things and in the commentary of how they did it sometimes they'd have Ian McKellen standing on a box that you couldn't see or they would have like in the fellowship of the ring when they're riding on the wagon the seat's actually not level so he's raised up there are so many cool tricks that they did and I think it's a much harder task for this movie because you have dwarves dwarves are almost the same size as hobbits so a lot of the times when they're on the screen without Gandalf, you lose some of that scale. We're usually seeing hobbits in relation to Dunedain rangers who are bigger humans or elves, things like that. And you, you have that scale, whereas here you're looking at equal heights, so you can almost get drawn out of it. They didn't do the cartoonish things like some of the dwarves in the books have blue beards and... and beards tucked into their belts and things like that. So it it's almost easy to forget that scale. Absolutely. Greg, another great thing about this movie is the wardrobe. The things that are done for real look really good. What are some of the wardrobe and makeup moments that you really thought were awesome? For me, I really like Radig- some of Radigast stuff, the bird nest under the hat, but specifically just once you realize that it's bird poop running down the side <laughs> of his face and it's kind of just like a permanent wardrobe item of his. It was it was a nice touch for me. Um, like it, it really went with like he was the animal lover. Would the animals could get away with anything, and he was going to treat them with love and compassion, even you know down the side of his face. So that was a really good touch for me. I thought it was funny, like uh, something about Mary. I was like, "Is that hair gel?" Oh no, that's oh no, that's <laughs> even worse than what I thought it was. <laughs> like it's like uh, it's bird poop running down the side of your face. Yeah, exactly. Like I, that was a, it was like a good laugh that is really pointed out. You could even probably miss it if you're not really paying attention. But it's a, it's a nice touch. The orcs that are done practically really well done. I think like the the original trilogy knocks it out even better. But the ones that they do do, and this one um, practically are great. I really like all the the sets. Those little like Hobbit Hobbit town, like the Shire, is a real place in New Zealand. So those yeah. little circle houses are like a real thing and it's it's super cool like that i like that aspect of it stephen hunter plays bombor getting the fat suit i thought was a really fun 
I, I like seeing the more extreme variety. And I'm okay with having, you know, like a Keeley who's like a more normalized because it makes Bombor seem all the more preposterous. So I'm okay with there being some differentiation in terms of whether they're more realistic or not. Yeah, Which, the, what is his name that has the the large mustache goes all the way down, like the Fu Manchu that curls up? Bofer. He has my favorite line of the entire movie, and he, he always comes in with some witty lines. Him as well as the first one that comes to the that comes to Bilbo is like his nose. Like I just really like the little touches like that. Like the dwarves, their makeup and costumes, really well done. I love the foreheads, like the big heads with like the receding hairlines and stuff. Just like funny, but like well done and very fitting. Yeah, I, there was one that I didn't like as much. Ori was the name. He's played by um, Adam Brown. Ori's character, which is played by Adam Brown, he's got this. He's probably looks like the weirdest. I feel like he's a little more belongs in like the village of the Who's from Doctor Seuss <laughs> than he does here, and that's just because I feel like the other ones might have a degree of seriousness. I think they mentioned that he's more of a younger dwarf, so therefore he might not be as overgrown with the long beard. He's the one with the slingshot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just felt like this character was not as enjoyable for me, and I think a lot of it just had to do with his wardrobe wasn't as cool as some of the other ones. Yeah, I I had a tough time. I, I'll start with praise, since I feel like I've been living in negative town here. Yeah, you're starting to sound like me on Scott Pilgrim. I, I did really like Bilbo's outfit. I enjoyed the buttons. Believe it or not, the, the buttons were a big thing. They were a big scene in the book. So having the buttons come off during Unexpected Journey, that was a cool scene, even though it was different. The dwarves were a tough one for me, though. They all had differentiating clothing in the books. They were brightly colored, whereas here they're mostly drab cloaks, and that's frustrating. They're colorful beards. I'm okay with not having a blue-bearded dwarf. Maybe you could just make it a grayish blue, but I thought Bofer's hat was super stupid. I hated that darn hat. Thorin-looking human, Killy having no beard. Bifer, they differentiated him by having an axe embedded in his head for no apparent reason. He can't speak until later on when he headbutts someone and it comes out. Like, they're just infuriating decisions to me that that made me very sad. Oh, okay. I, I, I was a little bit warmer on the wardrobe than, than you on this one. Radagast was cool. I, the direction they took was odd, but if you're going to go that direction, lean into it, and they did, and they made that very cool. Of course, Elrond. You know, his costumes are always on point. Thranduil. I thought Gladriel wasn't quite as... She didn't have as much presence as... Like, they give her presence with uh, cinematic techniques and camera and lighting. But, like, she's actually wearing something super duper plain and uneventful. She's not in her realm. Yeah, but didn't she just, like... Isn't she, like... I mean, she's at the White... Um, she's at the White Council? Yeah, she's at the White Council. I mean, shouldn't she, like... I don't know. Telling her to step it up. The e the e red carpet committee's on on her case. She's not there to impress Saruman or uh, Gandalf or Elrond. So yeah, no. He's decked out. Saruman's always like wearing white, you know. Elrond's always decked out. I mean, he is he's a fancy elf, and I'm fine with that. And then obviously, and we talked about. I like they really grunged Gandalf up. Yeah, and Thranduil, there was probably some practical effect they could do. They did do it with CGI, but I thought it was cool, the reveal of his face. Because in the books, he's using a mirror to reflect a perfect face, whereas here you actually do see the uh, 
the mangled face when he lets the magic barrier down. So that's pretty cool. Quentin Tarantino, get get ready for this. This is a foot segment here. So the Lord of the Rings trilogy had the prosthetic feet. And the actors often lost them. They had to reattach them. They were reapplied often. It was actually a hassle to continue to give all the hobbits their feet, their enlarged feet. So for this movie, they went the prosthetics went all the way up to their knees this time, and that worked better for them, as well as there's CGI touch-ups on that. And to your point, CGI had come a long way. So after I badmouthed CGI along, along the way, it did help. I just don't think you should put it out there on its own at this point in time. That's an odd thing that I I didn't really think about, but we didn't really get much hobbit feet in here. Uh there's only one there's not as many hobbits in the movie as yeah. there were in before. So I mean, you know, if you didn't get enough dwarfs in your first trilogy, then this one's here <laughs> to get your fill. Yeah. They were pretty heavy on the fan service, so I would have actually been okay with and kind of wanted a nut like Gimli's dad to be like nobody throws a dwarf. Gloin Yes. Yeah, glowing. I kind of wanted him just to like say nobody throws a dwarf like in conversation, like even at the dinner table, like that you could hear in the background, so that like that makes Gimli's line of like nobody throws a dwarf like even better. Never toss a dwarf. (laughs) There's enough funny stuff in this movie with like Bilbo dealing with the trolls and stuff like that that I felt like that is not out of line. And wigs, wigs, wigs. There were six wigs and eight different beards worn by all those actors in the band of dwarves and so it just it was really fun to see them change their scale and i always love how they make it gandalf just look bigger as you were talking about there chad now soundtrack can you tell me why it pops more in lord of the rings the soundtrack i feel like there's a sense of foreboding particularly the danger theme that the notes are played far more subtly and pervasively this one, yeah, I felt the same of there are hints from Lord of the Rings, but nothing just hits as high. I really like, so The Hobbit, the book is filled with songs, absolutely filled with songs, and they cut them all but two. But the song about the Misty Mountains that the dwarves do, and there's humming in the background, this deep-throated humming, I thought that was really nice and special. It's the closest I could imagine to the books like it it was something that i was just excited to hear and see play out i i might have edited that out but that's just me but um that's fair a lot of people are there with you but i really liked it greg you did mention that you did like the music a lot are there any moments that you felt like were particularly elevated by the music i do think the first time i'm trying to remember all the way back to the first time i watched it but even this time re-watching when the ring kind of pops out of Gollum's pocket and you get that lay motive from the original trilogy and you you kind of feel the weight of it. I, I really like that moment. I, I have to agree with Chad. I really like the Misty Mountain song. I think that that whole interaction and meeting all the dwarves is one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, it was just, it was very atmospheric. I thought like the, them singing and throughout the movie, I thought it was done well, but I will agree. The original trilogy just has much more of a weight to it, but I, it is very recognizable for me. I love the music from these movies, very nostalgic. Yeah. Now let's hand out some superlatives, guys. You ready? Yep. MVP, Greg. It's Richard Armitage for Thorin. He was kind of a dick at some points and like an angry dude the whole time, but I thought that he he played his character really well, Or and I... I liked the way he was portrayed with having like all of this internal conflict. 
um, and kind of coming around a little bit at the end, almost like you didn't want to at the end with Bilbo, but to an extent coming around by the end of the film. I just really liked his character. I thought he was casted well and he carried himself well throughout the film. That's a good point. We talked about how the character might not be that likable, but he does undergo a character transformation and the actor, Richard Armitage, does do a good job. I like your pick there. Chad, MVP for you. I went with Ian McKellen. Gandalf, he's the true link to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and it's, I think it's vitally important that Sir Ian returned and be up to the task. We mentioned, you know, this movie made him cry because of all the hardships he had to go through, but it doesn't show up at all, and Gandalf is just enchanting. Mine's Martin Freeman. I kind of gushed about it earlier, but I this is actually my favorite Bilbo version, even over even over Ian Holm. I it, it, the two are the same person to me almost because of how wow. good their performance is. Martin Freeman is just really enjoyable to watch in this one. It's made me a fan of his going forward from here. I mean, he I was familiar with him before this, but I was I became a fan of his after this because of the job that he did here. Even McKellen, Martin Freeman, Richard Armitage. I mean. I feel like the top of the cast is billed very, very well. High praise. High praise. I mean, Ian Holm is just... Oh, he's great. He is Bilbo to me now. Like, he's just... He's perfect. So, high praise for Martin Freeman there. Yeah. Greg, best supporting actor. I liked Ken Stock with, as Balin. Mm. Um, I just felt like he kind of felt like everyone's grandpa. He, I like this. I like the storytelling scene where they're kind of sitting in the cave and he's retelling kind of why Thorin is so in his uh, moodiness and all the time like that. He kind of level set the crowd and I mean, he was just a really likable character for me. So I think he did really well portraying that like grandpa to everyone kind of figure. That's a great pick. That's what I picked as well. So he's what I imagine a true dwarf would look like and how a true dwarf would act. His scenes are just so heartfelt to me and they're memorable and it it makes me sadder to think about the fate of Balin because we, we find out he perishes trying to reclaim Moria. So it, it made me even more attached to the character and can stop. Kudos to him. I kind of put Ian McKellen out of the supporting range because of how important he was in this. Uh, so just, again, I nod to Ian McKellen, but I don't really call him supporting. But I do think Andy Circus gets my best supporting here for, for Smeagol Gollum. Great pick, as always. Best hit, or sorry, hidden gem, Greg. My hidden gem was actually going to be Andy Serkis for Gollum. I thought his emotion showed through a lot more than in the original trilogy, even though he was much more prevalent in that one. Um, like the way the eyes look and just, um, I like the part where Bilbo's invisible and he's kind of holding the sword to, to Gollum or Smeagol and and there's that moment of sadness that you kind of see come over his face and you can really get the the emotion coming through there and that was kind of maybe my underappreciated moment of the movie but i think him and just that technology that goes into tracking his face is kind of my underappreciated or hidden gem chad hidden gem james nesbitt is bofer so i i've complained about his design but the emotions that james conveys when he's talking with bilbo he has a conversation about where Bilbo accidentally says, you guys don't even really have a home, and you just see this wave of emotion go over James's face. And it really struck a chord with me, and I think he does an excellent job with really limited dialogue there. You're right about that. He does a lot with a little. 
And it's very impressive that he overcame the hat for you, because I know Chad. When when you get, <laughs> when you get stuck on something like that, that's usually that's usually that's it for you. So it's not his fault. Yeah. And my hidden gem is going to be Lee Pace, Thandrel. 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 He's very good. I mean, I know I, I earlier said it wouldn't have been cool had David Tennant gotten that part. That would have been cool, but uh, it doesn't mean he's not good at this part. Uh, I kind of wish he had gotten to be in the movie a little bit more. He looks like an elf, so yeah. Recast. If you had to take somebody out of this movie and put somebody in their place, got to do it. Who would it be? Greg. So I had two different options here. So I would maybe replace Azog with just, I didn't really know who. I used Josh Brolin as my example because I was thinking how, like, if you're going to use him as the main villain, something like Thanos, where you can actually see some expression, some personality, kind of like they're doing for Smeagol. I don't think Josh Brolin's really the right pick, but he was just kind of who came to mind for myself, but a more recognizable character in Azog. Um, and then a, just an actor that I generally like, Travis Fimmel. He plays Ragnar in like the Vikings series. Him just cast as one of the dwarves, maybe switch out one of the lesser dwarves just to get him there for some of like the action scenes and stuff. I think he would have just played really well as a dwarf and been cool. Mm, yeah. You almost had your first choice there. Azog was a last minute digital addition to the movie. He was originally going to be an actor in prosthetics, and Peter Jackson just found that lacking the presence that he wanted so that they took that character, and he's still in the movie. And so there is another character, Yasnik, and like he's the ill-fated orc lieutenant that uh, disappoints Azog. So does look scary. He's not as big and bulky as the pale orc, but... He looks better. And I think you're right, Greg. I think I think if if you did just take that Yasneg character and just left it Azog and Peter Jackson didn't say, what if this were computerized? We would all be happier with this choice. Yeah, that's a good choice. My recast is I, I am going to do Adam Brown as Ori. I, I'm putting Charlie Hunnam in this. So this is this is a little bit before Pacific Rim and Crimson Peace for him. And you would know him from Signs of Anarchy as well. Okay, I, I couldn't place the name at first, but that did it for me. For me, I'm probably going to get some cringes here. I think I want Willem Dafoe as Thorn. So Richard Armitage, he's too young and he's too handsome looking. When I think of Thorn Oakenshield, he's supposed to be worn down. He's this wizened old king. And I think Willem Dafoe has the range to be, you know, not. Not overly handsome there, but to to play this spark of madness that Richard Armitage kind of just broods over where Willem Dafoe can flip a switch and go from peaceful, almost happy-go-lucky to psychotic. See, I don't know. I just feel like even in a good guy role like an Aquaman, like I feel like any minute now he's going to totally backstab and throw the entire king of, kingdom of Atlantis down. Like it, It's just... Something when Willem Dafoe is a good guy just doesn't work as well for me. Like, I mean, I feel like the dwarves would keep turning around and being like, ah, it's the necromancer. No, it's your king. Oh, sorry. Ah, it's the necromancer. <laughs> no, it's, it's still the king. Oh, God. Sorry. Yeah. Well, he's got a heavy beard. Let's just put it that way. He's, he doesn't have a close to the face beard. So maybe that will make him more trustworthy. Maybe. Now, best shot of the movie, Greg. Is the ring flying out of. Gollum's pocket whenever he's pulling the goblin there and I like the moment because it's I think like that increased frame rate does do the slow-mo well there and the way they do the sound and everything like 
the ring is portrayed with so much weight in such a small amount of time. It just feels heavy when it's clanking off the ground um, and bouncing around. And it's just that nod to like everything that's to come from Bilbo finding this ring. Great moment. Yeah, I was a little disappointed. It was it came to his possession so easily. I feel like Gollum is so obsessed with it. It was kind of like of like, man, like people are so attached to their cell phones. Like, I mean, like, you let that ring out of your sight. I mean, like, I, I, I always figured Bilbo had to finesse it out of him a little bit more as opposed to just, oh, look at this. Oh, man. So uh, in the books, when he fell, fell down the goblin cave and was unconscious, he literally wakes up and he's groping in the darkness and just finds the ring. So it's even less dramatic than what we got here. So maybe knowing that you'll be a little happier. Well, yes, I, I don't think a pitch black scene is a good idea there, for sure. Um, <laughs> uh, where are Gollum's pockets, though? He's wearing a loincloth. Yeah, you don't want to ask that question. Yeah, he's got no pockets there, so... Yeah. Maybe he's, like, part marsupial. It's New Zealand. Like, maybe he's got, like, a little pouch that he can just <laughs> stick it into, like, like a little belly button pouch that he can shove it into. No, he's a former hobbit. I know that. I'm making a joke. Ugh. Well, it's a... It's a bad one for a nerd like me, so boo. <laughs> Anyways, I'm, I'm going to Gollum's cave too, but different scene when we see Gollum on some rocks as Bilbo is approaching. He's singing to himself while bashing a goblin's brains out, and it's done so well. It's a very nice shot, even though it's largely CGI, but it does such a great job of showing you that Gollum is insane, and he's extremely dangerous. I think that's something that can be missed out on in the silliness that he's a real threat. I'm going to go back to Rivendell. Like uh, I know I'm very on brand with this Rivendell stuff, but uh, I'm in Rivendell and Gandalf is talking to Gladriel at one point. And it's a one point perspective where they shoot through an archway and they have a dark foreground. So it really calls to attention that they're talking to each other. And it's just got this elvish archway framing their conversation, and obviously the amazing canyon with the waterfalls uh, going over the edge in the distance there. What a room that is. And furthermore, you have two powerhouses, you know, get Egan Mikkel and Kate Blanchett talking to each other. The scene was all too short for me. That, that, was, that was pretty filming there. <laughs> of course, the architecture scene. Yes, it had to be. Best scene, Greg. The whole beginning scene where all the dwarves come over Bilbo's house up to the point the next morning where he kind of wakes up and no one's there and he realizes he was so adamantly against this adventure but he really truly wants to go that's one of my favorite moments of the movie I think this movie does it better than most other movies introducing that many characters they did it in such a fun way and in such a good atmosphere kind of in that um, little hobbit hole it didn't come off like Suicide Squad where they were just throwing names and little quips of people out there, different movies that kind of have failed to introduce a large cast. Very fun atmosphere. My favorite lines in the movies are in that scene of the movie as well. So yeah, that would be my favorite scene. That's what Bilbo Baggins hates. (laughs) (laughs) Chad, best scene. I'm going back to the White Council. And it's strange for me to spend such a large amount of time harping on adding unnecessary things to the book and then praise this scene. But man, I'm so glad it's in here. It's so awesome to just see Elrond, Galadriel, Saruman, and Gandalf together. And then there's just the bigger picture, this foreboding concern of the necromancer being back. 
So all of that kind of ties things in for me and ups the ante. Yeah, mine's similar. Mine's going to be the part where the, the dwarves need their map read by the elves and Thorin won't do it. And Gandalf is cajoling him and he's been pushing him together all along. He not only wants the dwarves to get home to get their gold so that they can keep Smaug uh, a dark force from having the control of that main thing as he knows Sauron's or a dark force is rising and which is we didn't really talk about that like that's really the crux of what's happening here in this first movie and then what he's also doing is in order to prepare for that is he's trying to reunite the forces in a way that they have drifted apart he wants the dwarves and the elves to get along and not have this cold tension. And I'm sorry it wasn't in the books, but I actually found this to be incredibly interesting. And so the scene that led up to them putting the map on the slab and being read at night, I just, again, it's more Rivendale stuff, and I know I keep harping on it, but to me, this is just the best part of the movie. I wanted to stay there for 14 days in Rivendale, too. <laughs> Everybody does. Yeah, the Rivendale stuff, I can see why in the, the events of the main trilogy, why Bill just hung out in Rivendale the whole time. Yeah. He'd been there once. He's like, I'm going back to Rivendell. I'm just hanging out there during all this stuff. You know where I'm not going back to? The Goblin King's lair. No. Oh, thank you. Best wardrobe or makeup moment? We, we praised a lot of this. Uh, Greg, what was your favorite piece of it? I'll go back to my praise. For some reason, you're praising the nice architecture in Rivendell. I'm praising the bird poo on the side of Radagast's face. But it was just a really nice touch and a funny, really fitting and funny um, makeup thing. So I like that a lot. Yeah. His hat's great, too. Chad... What about uh, you? What's your favorite wardrobe or makeup moment? Going back to Rivendell, the elves always look, always look awesome. I thought Elrond's outfit was a highlight. Hugo Weaving is much older here. He's still convincingly immortal. So to make him look as similar as he did to the original movies, I think that's a triumph here. I always wanted an outtake with him just having the glasses, you know, just like, Mr. <laughs> Baggins. Yes. Um, so um, I'm going to go with Balin's big white beard. I think you mentioned, Chad, this is the way I want a dwarf to look. It mm-hmm. is the way I want a dwarf to look. It is. I, I, I completely agree with that. So he's going to get my best. Yeah. Yeah, the nose, too. Everything on Balin was on point. Like, they nailed that design. Change one thing. Uh, Greg, if you had to change one thing and only one thing, what would it be? I think I'd, leave, I'd end the movie a little bit earlier than it was ended. Maybe leave it on a little bit more of a cliffhanger. Just so that it kind of lined up better with the first movie of the original trilogy. So we kind of have a similar start and a similar pull through. And the first one ends with Bilbo kind of, I mean, not Bilbo, um, Frodo going off on his own. That would be cool if they could kind of cut it off and make you think that he was leaving instead of the goblin cage or the goblin cave scene, so then you kind of open up and he's the second film and he finds the ring at the start of the second film and they kind of get trapped by the goblin king. Maybe they give him more time to do that right. In that same vein, when he falls into the pit below, think like, did we just lose our main character? I mean, not really, because you know like what's going to happen, True. but how are they going to come back together? And I think it's been cool seeing him yeah, going off on his own as like the ending piece and you kind of thinking, is he about to continue this adventure on his own more than did we like lose him or is something negative happening to him? Yeah. Chad, what about you? <laughs> this is a challenge. Uh, you can't think of anything you want to change? I can think of a lot of things, but it's change one thing, not change many things. So I'm going to go with the broadest stroke I can. I mentioned it earlier. I think the tone of this movie is problematic. 
we have this grand, serious, epic trilogy in Lord of the Rings, but here the dwarves are just bumbling, stumbling buffoons. You have fart jokes, fat jokes, jokes from the Goblin King of that'll do it. It's kind of fourth wall breaking, all of Radagast being played like Tim the Enchanter. Just Not that bad. I, to me, it kind of was. I really expected him to say a grail, but yes, I I need. I need this, the comedy and things like that toned down, and I need the scale to be more serious. Okay. Again, you totally saw this coming, but less CGI, meaning full frontal CGI is just not appropriate for our eyes as, as an audience. Phrasing? Phrasing? I would did that on purpose to, to say it's just like, <laughs> it's just an assault on our eyes. Just use stuff in the foreground, put real people in the scene, Shoot, you're in New Zealand. Use use your use your assets to your strengths better, and don't focus so hard. And you've got amazing wardrobe and makeup moments. You have to have an enormous budget at this point. You've come off the success of the other three. You can print money and do whatever you want to do. Isn't this where, as a director, you should step up and say, like, we're doing this for real? I mean, we're actually gonna. They had less money. They had less money this time around, which is stunning. It doesn't make sense though. Like, why did Warner Brothers do that? Like, why did Warren Brothers say we're going to make even more money by three movies? By the way, you get less money. Like, and perhaps my issue does go back into the production team a little bit, but I still think Peter Jackson got overly ambitious with his CGI. So you're saying that the the sheer quantity of CGI is due to being cheaped out on. Yeah, absolutely. The studio interference. I really thought you were going to say you wanted three more hours of Rivendale, though. Like, that has been <laughs> a running theme. Just architecture shots everywhere. <laughs> No, no, but I just, you know, I, it's, it's very on brand for me. If you, if you want, if you listen to the show a lot, I don't think they use their CGI responsibly and they should have their keys taken away from them. I'm there with you. Yeah. They handled Smaug pretty well in this movie. They didn't show him very much. It's like, you know, he was ravaging a city at the beginning and you don't really get a good glimpse of him. That's good CGI. Like getting and looking at Azog and now I will never not think about him just going wah, 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 wah. <laughs> Um, not a good moment it's not a good look but um best quote greg from bofer right at the beginning uh kind of when bilbo overhears them talking about the dragon he says smog the terrible chiefest and greatest calamity of our age airborne fire breather teeth like razors claws like meat hooks extremely fond of precious metals this is my favorite line for a couple reasons really cool just description of smog and you never get to see him like you said he's building up to this reveal of smog which even happens late in the next film um and i also he passed away now rest in peace but i had a bearded dragon i named him smog and that's how i described him to people chiefest and greatest calamity of our age and so it was always a favorite line of mine so hearing that was just kind of like a heartfelt moment for myself and uh i i really like that moment that's a good one Chad, what about you? Yeah, that's touching. Rest in peace to the beardy. Mine comes from Bilbo and Gandalf. There's an exchange where Bilbo's concerned and he says, can you promise I will come back? Gandalf looks at him and he gets this sullen look in his face and he says, no. And if you do, you will not be the same. Ooh, foreboding. Yeah, yeah. I got the chills on that one. So mine's a Gandalf line as well. And it's going to be... Save me from the stubbornness of dwarves. Your pride will be your downfall. 
that's so true of how the dwarves kind of got themselves into this mess with their thirst for gold and their craze that goes in hand in hand with that. It's a potent line that serves beyond the, the frame realm of this picture. And I'm, like I said, I may not have been in the books, but I actually found the dwarf elf interchange and the dynamics between that to be one of the most interesting things about this movie. So that line does it for me. I can't believe nobody said the uh, Gandalf's. Uh, I, uh, when Bailbo says, I've never used a sword, and Gandalf said, uh, I hope you never have to. But if you do, remember, it's true courage about knowing not when to take a life, but when to spare one. That was far too callback to the Lord of the Rings when he's talking about uh, Frodo talking about, I wish I had killed Gollum back in the cave. I kind of wish he had too. We would have saved ourselves a heck of a lot of trouble. You would have lost. Gollum was necessary to destroy the ring. If he hadn't attacked Frodo in Mordor, you have Frodo keeping the ring. Hmm. Good point. Yep. Don't don't try and out nerd me. Gollum's necessary. Man, I've been served a plate of cold revenge. I don't know. Not even just just plate of nerd nerd supremacy just now. I I've, I've yes. been out nerded. Sauron with his mace just smacked you. <laughs> yep, yep, I am. I'm definitely going to have to crawl back into my cave on that one, like a troll. Greg, on a five-star scale, the moment of truth, what would you rate The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, on a half-star intervals? I'm going to give it a four. I know it's kind of a high rating, but I, I really enjoy the movie. It was at a... Uh, you know, a time for me when I was really starting to actually dive into my appreciation of movies and watch them for more than just, you know, action or excitement or entertainment. I was actually watching them, getting into the lore of movies. And like I said, it kind of reignited my excitement for the overall Lord of the Rings trilogy. Holds a special place in my heart. That line that I, um, my favorite line is one of my favorite lines in all movies just because it does really remind me of my, uh, my beardy. So. Um, that line alone may get the, the movie a bias rating, in my opinion. <laughs> well, I, you're not alone. Even Ebert or Leonard Moulton, even tough critics, have soft spots in their heart from the things that hit them at the right age, and they become important to them. So even though it might seem a little campy or something sometimes, or like a jungle romp or like a Western type of thing, it hits them and they will go to bat for it. And that's that's just unbiased you know, opinions from even the experts who do this stuff. So nothing wrong with that and in fact i think i had a four written down but my first time seeing it but uh i i did change my rating but chad what about you what was your rating of this on a five-star scale yeah absolutely nothing wrong with your rating greg that's that's great that this makes you happy uh for me it's a three-star and i think it's primarily just I love the setting, and so getting back to Middle Earth any way I can makes me happy. It's enjoyable on its own, but I, I guess when you hold it up to the Lord of the Rings, it just can't hold a candle for me. So the entire time I'm watching it, like I would rather be watching Fellowship. So that's what I couldn't get out of my head. I think that I, and I'm going to split the difference here. I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a three point five, and I had this written at a four exactly where Greg did coming in because I'm a nerd also and I rate my movies and I keep track of them. But when I do this podcast, I study them. And normally I like a really well-made movie a lot more upon studying it. And unfortunately, this actually had a strange turn of events. The more time I spent with it, the more I kept 
going like, well, I wouldn't have done that, Peter Jackson, or Warner Brothers, what were you thinking? Or, you know, I've kept saying I would have done something differently, and it actually pulled me down to a 3.5. Now, having said that, as a casual watcher, well, I, I guess there's no such thing as being a casual watcher of this movie. This is this is for the niche fans. Like, it's a long, long movie, uh, and it's a prequel. And But, I mean, as a Middle-earth fan, I still am happy, and I think that next time I return to it and don't study it, I'll probably actually have a more positive connotation. Just don't take the magnifying glass to this one, and I think you can have a good time if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. And if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, I don't think you're going to have a, a good time with this at all. <laughs> Maybe not. No, it's not for everybody. But I mean, there are a lot of people who ravenously like this, and I'm one of them. Yeah, you had mentioned that your your wife has watched this trilogy with you, but she will not watch the original trilogy. Breaks my heart. Mine, uh, he's watched the original trilogy, but he refuses to watch this trilogy. He will not watch it to this day. So, yeah, I wouldn't go that far with this trilogy. I think it's worth visiting. I know, I know somebody else who won't watch a certain prequel from a Star Wars movie about a, a certain awesome pilot of the Millennium Falcon. Yeah. The solo movie is a complete different tangent and absolutely worth no one's time. I refuse to see it. You should it. see it. It's not bad. You should see it. It's unnecessary. But you should see it. All right. Chad, do you want to pick a movie for next time? I would love to. Next time, we're going to have a little bit of throwback here. We got option one, Vertigo from 1958. A former San Francisco police detective juggles wrestling with his personal demons and becoming obsessed with a hauntingly beautiful woman he has been hired to trail, who may be deeply disturbed. Option two, Midnight Cowboy from 1969. A naive hustler travels from Texas to New York City to seek personal fortune, finding a new friend in the process. And option three, Easy Rider from 1969. Two bikers head from LA to New Orleans through the open country desert lands, and along the way they meet a man who bridges a counterculture gap of which they had been unaware of. Oh, wow, we're getting in the Wayback Machine. Yeah. All right, I am going to go with Easy Rider. Got to go with uh, Henry Fonda there. Greg, thank you so much for coming back on. We had a lot of fun with you, man. Yeah, thank you for um, inviting me. We'll we'll have to maybe do a, a third round at some point. Uh, I really enjoy chatting with you guys every time, and there's always great movies. So um, until next time. All right. And to all the lords, ladies, and knights of the roundtable, thank you for listening. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So please, please, please so subscribe, review, rate to us. iTunes is the number one place you can help us out. So get a, make a little Apple account with your email. Just give us a five-star rating and review. If, you've, if you enjoy, if we make your community easier, if you, we make your time at work a little bit easier, help us out. That's the best thing you can do to help us out. Give us a like on Facebook. Comment to us. Let us know what you think about the episode that we did. Let us know what you think about the movie that we covered. We'd love to hear your thoughts. It's just fun to build a community and hear from you guys. We love that stuff. We're on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro and emails at retro movie roundtable, all one word, at yahoo.com. Thank you very much. Producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable. Any contributions will go towards making the show better. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chad? You step into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there is no knowing where you might be swept off to.